Three years ago, uh, Hope called me and said, Hey, there is a magician in Houston I think that we should go see. And I said, Cool. If you are unfamiliar, if this person works in the secular realm, they are called a magician. If they are working in any type of Christian atmosphere whatsoever, they are called an illusionist. I was at a conference recently where there were seven illusionists trying to get hired to do events. I don't know why they did not try to make each other disappear. But while I am at this, we hope and I decide to go. She said, let's call some people. We called Jared. We called Sarah. I think we called Sarah. She talked to us and we worked through things with her. And the four of us go to watch this magician do magical things in Houston. And while we are there, I am kind of mesmerized because I'm mesmerized when anyone does something I cannot do and that is a lot of things. If I go to Whataburger, I'm watching the back of the room and go, wow, look what they are doing with that burger. I would not know what to do if I walk into one of your chemical engineering plants. It would be overwhelming for me. But while I'm there, I'm watching this person do things with cards and do things with dye. And I don't think there was a rabbit, but I really wanted there to be a rabbit. But there was no rabbit. And as I'm watching them do these things, all that you would see over and over with this person was he's doing these tricks and anyone watching who is not in that industry, because it is an industry, he is not a real wizard like Dumbledore or Doctor Strange or Gandalf. He is a person doing tricks. You watch, you do don't understand, but you see what he's doing. This thing's known to you. And for us as Christians, I want us to understand this, and I'm making it as plain as I possibly can. God is doing things that we do not understand all of the time. And you don't have to understand them to trust what God has made known. You don't have to understand what he's doing. You don't have to understand how he's done it. You just trust that he is the one working and he is the one who has accomplished that task. And when we look through the scriptures, we see this about our Jesus. That Jesus is the mysterious power of God. Last week in verse 9, we read this text. He, God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ. God did something, and we don't understand it. I think that if we're being transparent, we would say that we do not understand in full how salvation works. No matter how many YouTube rabbit holes you may go down, or how many Theo brothers you have come across, you will find that you don't understand how God God has accomplished something mysterious. But He has made it plain for us. What he has accomplished, for us to grasp it, we are to look to the person of Jesus and see that God has done all that he has done in Jesus. And we are enabled to walk with God because of Jesus. Go with me in your Bibles, if you have those, to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. We're going to go 15 through 23 because it's the next section of the text of Ephesians. This is why... Since I heard about you, about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is hope is the hope of his calling. What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? He exercised the power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and every authority and power and dominion. And every title given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he subjected everything under his feet. And he appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. So one more time, just to help us grasp what's taking place in this text. We do not have to under, we look at this text and we see that Jesus is the mysterious power of God. God revealed to us. And we see that power as we work through the text in three ways. In Paul's prayer, to God's people, and by the resurrection. In Paul's prayer, to God's people, and by the resurrection. If you need that to be completely alliterative, feel free to go to the thesaurus on your phone even now and begin to look for a word that is a synonym for resurrection because I could not find it. So when you look at the text, you see that he prays certain things. I don't want us to miss what he prays. The first thing that we see in this text is that he prays for these people. And he prays. And while he's doing this, he never stops thanking God for them. Fifteen. This is why I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Paul had a really good interaction with the church at Ephesus. If you have been around a pastor at any point, you have realized that they will have horror stories from time to time. They will go through difficulties and circumstances that are a bit overwhelming. That They may have an elder board that does not get along with them. There's a possibility they have a board of deacons who is functioning like an elder board that does not get along with them. There are numerous things that we see in regard to what the church is where there are situations and circumstances where people are pushing against a pastor and the pastor struggles. Here at the church of Ephesus, you have Paul, and he says, every time I think about you people, I love you. I'm grateful for you. I'm moved by you. This is why, is what he says, or your, your Bible may say, for this reason. When we read a phrase like that, we have to think, well, what is the reason? And if you weren't here last week, we're glad that you're here. Welcome. The reason that he would never stop giving thanks for these people is not because they don't have any differences, because if you're around people at all, you have differences with them. It's because of what unites them. So let me walk through the things that Paul has united, is united with the church at Ephesus in and the things that I'm united with you if you are a believer in this room in. And these are all found in the verses that we read just a portion of earlier. We see that they are united in the person of Christ. Well, what is the reason? Listen to this. In Christ, God has given us every spiritual blessing. So I'm never going to stop giving thanks because God did this to unite us. In Christ, Paul says, God chose us before the foundation of the world. In Christ, God made us holy and blameless. In Christ, God predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. In Christ, God did all of this for the purpose of his will to the praise of his grace. 
In Christ, God, God redeemed us. In Christ, He forgave us our trespasses. In Christ, He lavished riches on us. The word lavish means that He did not stop pouring out His love, mercy, and care on top of us. In Christ, God made known the mystery of His will, uniting all things. In Christ, God obtained an inheritance that He will bring through to, to fruition. In Christ, we are signed, sealed, delivered, we're His. Here we are, baby, in the words of Stevie Wonder. In Christ, we are a united people. And when you look at this text, what Paul is saying is, before we ever understand how a church is supposed to function, we have to understand what has united us for the purpose of function. What has brought us together to do God-sized things in this community, in their community, in their world. In Christ, we are united. And in Christ, the next word that you'll notice in the text is, you are a saint. You may want to stop right there. For you, you may have some type of theological baggage when you come across a word like saint. You may even use poor grammar and tell me you ain't a saint. And that's okay too. In Christ, however, we see that we are united and that you have an idea of... You do, though, have an idea as to what saints are and what they're supposed to be. We've come across the word at some point in our lives. And you may say to yourself when you hear a word like that, I'm not that. Saints are the people that are doing really, really good things. I'm just trying to get through the day. But the scriptures tell us that God has done something unique in us because of all of the things that have been accomplished in Christ in that list that we just ran through. He says to every believing person in this room, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. Not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has accomplished. Not because of what you decided, but because of what God set in motion from the beginning of the beginning. In Christ, we are saints. And for every believing person in this room that is shaking your head in that gift format that we see with, Stur with Shannon Sharp, I just need you to know, in Christ, you have been sainted. Not because of you, but because of who you are in. God has made you a new person. A new thing. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. Everybody buckle up. I know that's a hard thing to hear, that name. I want to give you a new word for yourself. A word that gets beneath all appearances. Behind all roles and behind all functions. A word that defines you primarily in terms of who God is for you and what God is doing in your life. A person who is growing up in Christ. A person who can, cannot be accurately identified apart from God's intense and God's persistent attention. You are a saint. And we, so we do pay attention. Saint. Holy. That's who the believing people are. And if you are in Jesus, that's who you are. And we just need to be reminded of that from time to time. The God has said, this is who you are. So let's participate. I attended a wedding in this room yesterday. I wore a tie yesterday. If you think that is a very weird thing, I agree with you completely. But I want you to repeat after me. We're going to do something. I'm not going to have it on the screen, but people have been repeating things for a long time without screens, and they're okay. Listen, introverted friends. 
This is going to be the portion of our, of our time together when I'm going to ask you to use volume. Okay? In him, I am a saint. In him, I am forgiven. In him, I am redeemed. In him, I have his promise. In him, I am a saint. And every moment of your life where Satan whispers to you that you are not, hear Jesus shout to you who you are. 16. I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. Paul just rocking it. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Hear this. For those of you who are believers and who do not consider yourselves saints, because of whatever you have taking place in your life, Paul says this. He prays that these saints would be saintier. He prays that they will know God better. You know Him, Paul says. I want you to know Him better. And, and as the pastor of this church, Jared and I get to work together, that's what we, we pray. We know that, look, if you're showing up on Sunday mornings, nine out of ten of you are believers in Jesus. That one out of ten, let's chat after worship. But for those of us who are believers in this room, we do pray that you realize what salvation is. But for the bulk of us, I pray that you'll know Jesus better. We see this, that God, this is how Paul prays for them. And we see that he's praying actively. He's praying with direction. He's praying, praying with intent. He's praying with purpose. He's praying with declaration. This is who you are, he says. This is how he tells this is how he shows them what prayer looks like and he is intentional with it. But we also see that we see the power to God's people in the passage. God is doing a unique work where he's going to declare and establish that he is a God who is powerful and he has done that in the person of Jesus and he is saying to those of us who are united with God through the person of Jesus, those of us who were in Christ made new because of him. He says that I want you to see the power that God has offered you. Now, this is not bench press power. This is not take a verse out of context power. This is when he prays for them, he never stops thanking God, but he goes on to declare to them, I want you to see how God wants to interact with his people. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, he says in verse 18, so that you may know what is the hope of your calling. What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? We don't use the word hope the way the Bible uses the word hope. I use the word hope when there's a situation at my house because my wife is the one who fixes things. Hope, help me. Most of us use the word hope in almost in exchange with the word wish. Man, I hope I get an extra week of vacation this year. I hope that we get to go to Disney World, right kids? Talk to them. I hope, I hope, I hope. There may be nothing certain about it. Our use of the word hope is full of doubt, but when Paul uses it, it is full of certainty. 
You notice in the text, I know what is the hope of the calling. This is not him saying, maybe Jesus shows up, maybe he doesn't. He's saying Jesus shows up for his people. Jesus with his people. And what is the immeasurable, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? This is the power of God active in his people according to the mighty working of his strength. How would God's power be active in the life in the lives of God's people. Is that something that is done vertically? As if God is sitting in heaven moping and moaning, thinking, man, I wish they would just sing that Andrew Peterson song again. Man, I wish they would remind me that I'm worthy. If anyone knows he's worthy, it's God. However, God in this text is using Paul to direct us as to what it means for us to demonstrate the power of God in the lives of those who are outside of him. The word power is unique in the Bible. It is, it runs through it. One hundred times we come across the word dunamis in the scriptures. It's the word, we, we get dynamite from it. And every time you hear it, just an adrenaline should rush. Almost like this. So, I played five-on-five basketball yesterday. With some other people in the room. There were some guys who were under their 20s who played. They seemed fine. There were some guys who were in their 30s. They are walking gingerly. There are some guys who were in their 40s who I would ask to stand up if they could. It was a really long... But playing full court 5-on-5 basketball, when you are not built for full court 5-on-5 basketball, is a really difficult thing. And it took me back to the days of my life when I played a lot of video games. You may or may not believe this, but there were some video games in my past... One of my favorites was, was this game, NBA Jam. Anybody play this? Anybody besides me? Okay. Two on two, full court. And, and yeah, right there. I mean, just look at that guy. That massive cranium on that guy because he'd gotten the upgrade. And as you're playing through the game, you're hearing the announcer say certain things. But there's one phrase that was this incredibly powerful phrase that you heard over and over and over. Because if you scored enough points, or if you got on fire... He may say something like, he's on fire, or he's heating up, or my personal favorite, boom shakalaka. <laughs> power, power, power. Paul, throughout this text, throughout the New Testament, we see power, power, power running throughout it. And we don't just see power, we see it working. We, that word is there as well. Energy is where we get the word. It's an inworking. The word mighty, the ability to conquer, it's it's Kratos. Strength, it's physical force. This is not this subjective thing or this internal thing. This is the power of God at work through his people. How is God working through you? Paul offers this power according to, to one theologian. Offers this, pr- this prayer not for individual believers as though they can fully attain this on their own. But he imagined this prayer being fulfilled or accomplished in a community. God's people doing God's things in God's world. Because as we live out what it means to walk with Jesus, we are saying to a world that is increasingly telling us that it belongs to itself. We say, no, no, 
No, this belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to me or you. It, it belongs to Jesus. And we push back darkness and we undo hell when we are declaring that, yes, this world belongs to Jesus. All of it. Everything belongs to Him. There's a uniqueness of the church in the Bible. When you go to the first three centuries of the church, you see unique aspects of the way that their faith was demonstrated. The community functioned in paradox. Simultaneously, offensive and attractive. We see this in the various ways the church functioned. One is, you see that, according to, to Tim Keller, you see the world was reconciling. That God was about reconciling His people. We also see, when we read through Acts, the idea of the church being multiracial. We see that in the Scriptures. We also see in the Scriptures that the people who belonged to Jesus were sexually countercultural. In a world where there was a uni- a, an understanding as to what sexuality was that was opposed to God, the church functioned in a way that says that they belonged to God. They were committed to life, not just in the way they voted, but in the way that they lived, that there were babies that would be thrown on top of garbage heaps. And the church at night would run through the night picking those children up and adopting them, raising them as their own. They cared for the poor. They cared for the suffering. For the hurting, they cared for the least of these. The church was not just a thing that was. It was a church. It was a thing that did. We get the opportunity to do that today at the end of our service. I'm not done. I've got more verses. But I want to remind us. So, you may have never looked... You may come from a church background that has this glorious lot with a playground, and that's cool, and just spacious acres. We don't have that. We have Taco Bell. We've basically got a food court in the parking lot, if you like that. <laughs> At the end of our strip, there is a public school. It's called, it's called Lighthouse. And we have, uh, through our um, servolution, we have worked with them some. We, we have painted. We've done different things. This week, it was brought to my attention by Miranda Corn, one of our church members, that, that there was a situation on Facebook where the Lighthouse does not have a PTO. It's parent-teacher organization. They don't have that. Now, you may go to a school or your kid may go to a school that has that. Parents come together, they support the school. They make sure that teachers have the, the resources that they need to educate their children. That's not down there because at Lighthouse, kids come from all over the county because they've gotten into a situation or uh, made a bad decision. And they're there from all over Brazoria. There's no one to come alongside of them and do the things that a PTO would. Today, at the end of our service, we are going to take up an offering and we are going to fill the pantry of those teachers who do not have a PTO to do so. We are going to get the literal opportunity to love our neighbors. You may say, I don't like public schools. Okay, work through that. Do you like snacks? We can all agree that snacks are awesome. We are going to love our neighbor. Because Jesus seems to be serious about it when he repeats from the book of Deuteron- from the book of Leviticus 19. We're going to love our neighbor at the end of the service, so be ready for that. If, they, if you don't have cash with you, that's okay. I understand. It's the year of our Lord, 2022, and you can go online on that fancy QR code, I think. 
Really, Jared's just in charge of things. I'd like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Like, you talk about me, like, rah! Okay. Verse 20 through 23. We see this as well in the text. We see the power of the resurrection. Or we see power by the resurrection. Ultimately, it's all coming together here. He exercises power in Christ. He exercises power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. There is a central theme in these verses in chapter 1, and that central theme is Jesus. He seated him above every ruler, above every authority, above every power, above every dominion, above every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet, and he appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. If I were to add a paraphrase to that, every single way. The church functions like that. Now, you will notice in that text, if you have been around here at all, we believe that Jesus, according to the Scriptures, is preexistent. He always has been. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's from John chapter 1. But when we look into the book of Ephesians, you see that Paul is declaring to us Jesus as the God-man. It's where we see John come together with the Incarnation. The fullness of God. We see the fullness of God there. We see tabernacling among us. The Word becomes flesh and dwells with us. Jesus is and forever will be a person. So he uses words in the text to point out the, that Jesus is a man in, in contrast to the way that the world is. And he's letting us know, I know you think you have rulers, but Jesus is the ruler. I know that you think there are authorities because you've got your bosses and you've got your uh, whoever's in charge of you. But Jesus is the ultimate authority. I know that you think that there is power and dominion because the world and its darkness are pushing against you and, and making life hard. But Jesus has all power and all dominion. I know that you think that those, those fancy titles given to people that those make them sound like big deals. But Jesus is the biggest of big deals. I know that you think that you can't wait for this to be over because the world's so hard. But this Jesus who is in opposition to everything that this world has and in every way that this world reigns, he's good and he is gracious and he is loving and he is merciful and he doesn't just reign here, he reigns in the world to come. That's who this Jesus is. Jesus is and forever will be a person. Uh, Carson says this, As the God-man, he's received all authority. I mentioned a few weeks ago that the best way for us to answer a mystery, according to fiction writers, is a person. Whenever there's a mystery in a novel, the answer is going to be a person. I wonder where that comes from. Because the answer to the mystery that has been set in motion is a person. I don't understand how predestination works, but I want to look to Jesus. 
I don't understand how election works, but I'm going to look to Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Carson's full words are this, For all eternity, our Savior will always be our brother. For all eternity, the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree, he bore them as the God-man. The one who has all authority over all beings in heaven and on earth, now and forever, world without end, is not simply the creator God. He is God in the flesh. And we are people who are brought around this reigning, ruling Jesus. This king, who is declared in this text explicitly and in the whole of the Bible undeniably. This Jesus, who is the central figure in all of human history. Dallas Willard says this, Yet today, from countless paintings, statues, and buildings, from literature and history, from personality and institution, from profanity, popular song, and entertainment media, from confession and controversy, from legend and ritual, Jesus stands quietly at the center of the contemporary world, as he himself predicted. He graced the ugly instrument on which he died that the cross has become the most widely exhibited and recognized symbol of death. When we read through this text and we see Jesus as one who reigns and rules in opposition to the reigning, ruling, principalities, demonic, or whatever of that world at Ephesus, we see that his good, gracious, eternal rule that will last forever on top of forever, forever, ever, this Jesus, as he reigns and as he rules, does so by inverting the idea of what power is and taking death upon himself, sacrificing himself in our place. We see it in the Gospel of Mark when he undoes the gates of hell by his death, sacrificial death on the cross. We see it in this text. We see that this Jesus is that. So let me just ask some questions. Because I think questions are helpful. If you are not, what am I supposed to do with this text? What am I supposed to do with this Bible teaching? What am I supposed to do with what God's saying to me? If you are not a saint, and I mean you have never entered into a relationship with Jesus, I want you to, and the Lord is just impressing things upon you for whatever reason this morning, I want you to submit to Jesus as your king. I want you to trust him, place your faith in Jesus. I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room. Every Sunday after I preach, I'm back there. I think you guys don't know that that's where I'm going to be, even though I tell you every single week. I'm back there. If I need to find a new spot, I will. If you are not a believer and you want to talk to me or let me set you up with someone to talk to about what it means to submit to Jesus as king, if you are not a believer, let's do that. Because Jesus died so you can have right relationship with him. Here's why I say that. We take communion here every other week. We believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus is central to what we are and who we are as believers. If you are not a believer in this room, don't take communion. It's a cracker and it's grape juice. That's it. But if you are a believer, I've got some questions for you. So don't think I've left you out. I love you. Here are my questions for you. Or maybe my observations. If you are a believer, before you take communion today, I want you to wrestle with this. If you are a believer and you do not interact with God in prayer and through His Word, before you take communion, could you just wrestle and submit to King Jesus so that you would begin to interact with Him in prayer and by reading His Word? Because He uses those things to renew you. 
If you're a follower of Jesus and you are not part of a Christian community, meaning that you are not part of a church, you're not part of a small group, you're not part of a life group, if you are passively interacting with those things, before you take communion, could you just wrestle for just a moment and trust, that Je- trust Jesus and let's find you some of that? If you're like, I don't think this is going to be my church, that's okay. I know where First Baptist is. It's on Yopon. They're good people. I want us to be part of Christian community if we're believers because you weren't made to do this alone. None of us were. We as God's people are to So, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. If you have never trusted in Jesus, you're not going to be good enough, you're not going to be wise enough, you're not going to be smart enough to enter into a relationship with Jesus. But if He has impressed upon you that you should submit to Him and trust Him, meet me in the back corner of the room right now. Next, if you are a believer, a member here at Grace, you have a relationship with Jesus, you've trusted in Jesus, before you take communion, could you just wrestle with those things we talked about? And see what it means to submit to God giving you direction for your life. Praying, reading your Bible, being part of a gathering, interacting over Scripture. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you that you are good to us and that you say true things to us. Father, I thank you that your word is full of power. And Lord, for, for my people in this room who I have been given the privilege to, to walk alongside of, for Jared and for our elders who are, who are given opportunity to care for these folks, Lord, I pray that they will see that you've said to them they are saints. And no one gets to undo that. Father, I pray for the non-believers in the room that you would save them from their lostness. That you would move them from despair to hope. We thank you for all you've done and for all that you are doing. We ask all this in your name, Jesus.